of course I've received, you know, people don't like me and, and oh well, <laughs> you know, the fact is, is that when I'm, in, when I'm in a hospital and I'm comforting a young person who, who I'm cradling in my arms like a baby because they've been stabbed uh, and then speaking to their mum, making sure that they're housing and that's the work, that, that's the work for me. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. After recent incidents in inner city Bristol, this episode we talk about the criminal justice system. We chat with Desmond Brown, former chair of CORE and head of the Lamy Review, about stop and search, gangs, county lines and knife crime. Hello Des, Hello. how are you doing? Good, good to speak to you Neil. You were the former chair of CORE. Commission on Race Equality, it was set up yeah. in 2018. Uh, I was the first chair of that. You know, before Marvin and Asher... You know, we've had years, and I've characterised it as a tale of two cities. You know, Bristol has a lot of riches, but it hasn't been passed out to all its inhabitants, especially for the BME and the black community. There was a real push to kind of get this representation and to look at some of the disparities within that and hold institutions to account. You were known initially for heading up the I Am Judah campaign around when, when Judah was, was tasered yeah. and lobbying. You're not from Bristol originally, are you? No, no. I was born in Zambia. I've got an Irish mother and a, and a Jamaican father. Lived in Jamaica for a short time as well as Zambia. Came to England, lived in London, travelled quite a lot and, you know, ended up in Bristol. Um, uh, the mother of my children moved to Somerset, so I followed them here to kind of, obviously, to be involved in their lives and happily landed in Bristol. I mean, it wasn't something that you know, ever, ever, I want to live in Bristol, but, you know, I've I, I really, really loved my time here. You know, it's only when I leave the area and I go under a lot of different hats that I go and see other constabularies, speak to different police officers, speak to different community groups. And it's only then you actually see that how far ahead Bristol actually is in its reach around these issues of, of race, class, ethnicity. The Home Office has been really interested in the work that I've been doing with the LAMI. They're interested in a lot of the VRU unit that I helped set up. And, and so we've got a lot of central government focus on good practice in Avon and Somerset and Bristol in particular. So, you know, I, I think we are moving the nation, really. What's a VR unit? A violence reduction unit, which is that public health model of where we treat serious crime and serious violence as a disease that young people are exposed to at a young age and then they inherit to take on, that actually we're starting to intervene earlier on in, in, in that now-known process of how people become involved in serious violence, that we're actually dealing with some of the systemic leads sure. to that. Your, your, your sense really is what we want to try and talk to you most about mm. today is, is the criminal justice system sure. and your, your kind of role in that and how you've worked quite closely with the police mm-hmm. And in, in particular, your new role as head of the Lammy Review. Yeah. That, that's obviously been set up by David Lammy, the, the Labour MP. So just for those that don't know, what, what is the Lammy Review? I'm the independent chair for the Lammy. So the Lammy Review uh, for Avon and Somerset was set up really by Sumat Stevens and Andy Marsh. I think 
again, getting in front of the curve, this was 2018, after the Lemmy Rue, they really wanted to understand how it affected Avon and Somerset. So we've got a London-centric Lamy review, but actually how did the 35 recommendations that he came up with around uh, prisons, uh, the criminal justice system as a whole, how were we doing? Because, you know, one of the issues that we've got is every time, and we've heard it with Boris Johnson now talking about we need another commission on the effects of, of, of race in this country. Now, we've had since the McPherson report, we've had nine reports around race and the criminal justice system. And the last one was the Young report before David Lammy. And, you know, if you were to read the review of that, it says little has changed and little effort has been made. Even a year after the Lammy report was issued, he came back to review his review and said little has changed. In fact, it's got severely worse. I mean, at the time of the Lammy review, we had 40% of BME young men in custody in the year between that it's gone up to 51% and I would say probably now we're probably close into the 60% of young BME people who are incarcerated. This was all off the back of a report in 2017 uh, an yeah. independent review specifically into the treatment of and the outcomes for black Asian and minority ethnic individuals in the criminal justice system and you had a, a kind of panel in London then we set one up in Bristol so where, where else in the country are they? I think we are really the only other one outside London that is looking at local data and actually building on the recommendations. David Lammy didn't talk about stop and search. He didn't talk about school exclusions. We've added that into the mix, building on the 35 recommendations to look for the pinch points, because at the same time, there is lots of disparity. There are lots of good practice. And so this isn't a witch hunt looking for racists within the criminal justice system. And the overarching aim of this was to improve, it says, the fundamental principles of trust, fairness and responsibility, which are key to addressing racial disparity Mm. in the criminal justice system. So this wasn't looking at whether there was disparity. It's an acceptance there is racial disparity. And these are the recommendations in which we can change that. Just give me some examples of what what those are. You know, looking at the judiciary, that the representation within Crown Court and the judiciary system doesn't represent BME people that well. So within the court system, you will find lots of cleaners and security, but you won't find ushers and clerks of the court from BME backgrounds. But but also looking deeper with, for instance, a black man being charged with robbery and a white counterpart charged with theft. Now, one of those is an aggressive action, but they've actually done the same thing. So it was looking at how the charging system worked, how we could get away from that disparity over court system that in a trial, you know, you couldn't just mention, oh, the fact that we think he's a gang member, because that was very racially charged. You had to prove that statement rather yeah. than throwing out. So, 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 so that's some of it. But, but it goes deeper within prisons with incentives and privileges. There was a big disparity within that use of force used on black prisoners. You know, and, and, and we did see some of that in even a Somerset. There's a big focus on the youth justice system, isn't there? Yeah, particular, yeah. A big focus on young people. One of my first jobs actually was working with young offenders before custody and sometimes in custody. But it was very, I, I very much noted the high amount of young black boys in custody of that age in youth offending institutes. You know, there's obviously a real drive to now, or, or people are certainly talking a good game around trying to understand the kind of issues as to why that happens and how we can kind of steer young people in the right direction. Do you feel the reasons for that are specifically down to 
institutional racism in the criminal justice system? Or are there also other factors at play? No, and you know, and, and one of the real things that I can come away with and say with my hand on my heart is starting this journey in 2017 where my my knowledge on the criminal justice system was very, very lacking, to be honest. And I, I used to use lots of tropes and, and lots of mythology around the policing that did me no good or did, our, did my community no good. The, the issue is, is the police are institutional racist, as is every other institution. And the thing is, what I say, you can throw stones at the police station, but you're going to get nicked. If you're throwing stones at the police station because you're upset about your housing, your schooling, your, you're going to get nicked. So we need to refocus. My biggest concern is how young people get into the criminal justice system. And that happens through the school to prison pipeline and stop and search. And there's also other routes into it. Yeah. But my concern is we have an institution that disproportionately excludes black boys. Uh, from certain uh, and white children, to be honest, I mean, I, I think that we've got to, you know, even though the LAM is set up for BME communities, I'm seeing the same effects on white working class communities. So, you know, part of what I sure. what I say is, if we solve some of these issues for BME communities, I feel we'll solve it for all communities. And I listened to your podcast last week where we talked about lack of possibilities for white working class children, and it dismays me. It really does. There is a clear school-to-prison pipeline that has been set up that is through exclusions, through marginalisation, through criminal child exploitation, county lines, uh, our culture that needs to be changed. And, you know, once they get into the criminal justice system, uh, we've got to fight to get them out and, and, and we need to kind of get upriver where they're falling in the water and start dragging them up, not wait until they, mm. they wash up on the shore. That's a, an interesting point that you make and I think that does get overlooked and I'm interested to know what you think about this around the kind of stereotyping of particularly young black boys um, around knife crime and around gangs you know even the use of the word gang in in a a collection of of young people and Akala talks a lot about this doesn't Mm. he around the similarity between boys growing up in Tottenham or Hackney and and boys on the on the schemey estates in Glasgow the the similarities of experience Uh, is, is there quite a lazy analysis in this country of young black boys. As Akala has said, you know, we've had 200 years of serious youth violence. If you look at the Sheffield gangs in 200 years ago, the drivers for these knife gangs, and they were white working class boys from Sheffield, yeah. and you've got the Brumman boys, you've got uh, Peaky Blinders, but there was, you know, that's basically... Yeah, the, the Brummies, the Birmingham, yeah, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and we had in... in, in in um in Bristol, you know, we had up in Kingswood, we we had a, in the 17th century the first gang that started ran raiding apparently, who lived in the forest and they were seen as a gang and people used to affiliate with them for protection and but how they stopped them they, they hung all of them that's how they got rid of them but the, the main drivers of youth violence whether you're black or white is lack of education domestic violence poverty. And the list goes on. So mm-hmm. if we really want to solve this, rather than, because it's a very convenient hook to say, oh my God, we've got moral panic around young black people with knives. If we had that same moral panic around mm-hmm. domestic violence, we'd be locking up middle-income white men for stabbing their wives. You know, there, there, is, there is far more knife crime around domestic violence than there is on the street. If we really want to solve serious youth violence, we need to look at the actual, the things that, that cause this trauma within communities, and most of them are low-income communities, that are uh, intergenerational. 
that's all the kind of social factors that um, <laughs> are around this. Yeah. yeah. Some people would say, are we not just a bit too soft these days, making excuses for people's behaviour and actually we need less carrot, more stick? A lot of people do think that, Des, don't they? Oh, well, yeah, how, would you, how do you respond to that? Well, you know, but again, she, as Akala says, internationally, prisons do not work. They don't work. You know, for the reason that we've got mm-hmm. them here, they don't work because what, what you, you're doing is addressing the, the, the symptoms. And this is a public health idea that, as I said, that, that violence is, is a disease that if you've been infected with it, you carry it on. Now, it might seem very liberal, and, but it, as far as the evidence that I have, in fact, and, and I, I collect evidence mm-hmm. every day, it shows me that those people with adverse childhood experiences have a more probability of, of being involved. That there are these issues. And, and it just amazes me that we would rather demonise a group and put them outside the law than actually go, actually, we need to, to look at these issues and solve them. And, and that's what's not happening. We are demonising young people and not say, saying, actually, the trauma that you've suffered and your parents have suffered uh, it, it, it is anything that we should be looking at. Yeah, do often forget about victims, and I suppose is prison there to punish, or is prison there to to rehabilitate? Well, you know, I think if you look for under eighteen, the remit of a prison service for for juveniles is rehabilitation, not punishment. Once you get past eighteen, that's when the punishment starts. So again, I think we need to revisit. If people aren't happy that the fact that young people, and we've had that in the news, that poor woman who's a daughter was murdered by a 17-year-old who got a juvenile sentence who's campaigning that longer sentence for younger people. You know, uh, part of the Lammy thing was to look at a maturity tool for those over 18 going into prison because what we're finding is that there are lots of groups, and it's not just BME, but white working class groups, who their maturity is such a low level that they need help through that rehabilitation or that punishment. You know, some of them who are 21, 22 have a reading age of 12. You know, we're locking up young people. And the population of prisoners who were excluded from school, we're talking about nearly 60%. Mental health issues, you're talking about 40%. So you've got a, a, a criminal population that have been failed by the system. Society has stacked things against people. Uh, and, and, you know, if I look at the costs... In the criminal justice system, a murder, and we've had a, we've had a death today, which is, is, is very sad for someone within our community, that costs £3 million for the, for the, for the police to deal with. Yeah. Violence with injury, £14,000. Uh, violence without injury, for the police to be called out and they're invested, 5000 So if we're not talking on the moral issues of why we need to stop this, as a taxpayer, I think we need to start looking mm-hmm. at early interventions purely for a financial cost. I think it costs something for, for for a year for a young offender to be to be in a young offenders institute around approaching the hundred grand. Yeah, hundred twenty grand. Yeah. Hundred twenty grand. Yeah. And you know these early intervention prevention programs cost you know a, a fraction of that. I would say one of the best and key early interventions programs is good old fashioned youth clubs, yeah. which basically get young people socialising and playing sport and doing art and doing music. And we've had twenty of those that have closed in Bristol mm-hmm. in the last ten, fifteen years. And this is this was a national picture, so not just in Bristol. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was quite short sighted 
uh, a short-sighted decision, and that's come back to, to bite us on the arse a little bit, um, so to speak. Well, short-sighted if you're not asking my political um, <laughs> affiliations. But, but yeah, you know, the, the age of Australia... Well, no, no, I, I mean, this was... Forget about politics. Mm. And the, I mean, I think if you go back then, that, that was a, it was a rainbow cabinet in Bristol anyway, but, and, if, and really Bristol followed... There were National, other cities yeah. that had done the same thing. So this is not a party political thing. It's just it was seen as a way of, in, in times of austerity, reducing budget. And actually, if you do the maths, it's probably cost us economically far more by having them all closed. You know, you can pick off a number of those young people two, three years before that if they're regularly engaging in some yeah. positive activity and social engagement. You know, I'm having conversations with people and where I'm actually... They think I'm coming up with something brand new, and it's it's basically a youth club. Yeah, you know, a place where people could come and there's other people that have come yeah. from their background that they can speak to that can go. Wow, that's a really no. This is youth clubs. This is what we have, <laughs> and it has yeah. been twenty years of of austerity and 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 also law and order prevailing. You know that led us to uh, yeah. again this idea of us and them. Yeah. You know that's where we're at with the Brexit and everything else at the point where. Even some of the people that are natural allies, which I would say working class and BME communities, have been put at each other's throat for these ideologies which yeah. don't benefit any of us at all. The austerity was obviously started by the financial crash, which was bankers, and it hit the poorest the hardest, didn't it? But I do think that something about having a, a space where young people can just hang out it's not it's not rock it's not rocket science so so really your argument is you would like to see far more investment into uh prevention rather than cure yeah well you know and and, and i even have conversations with the police and I, as i say Avon and somerset are very uh good partners as i said i'm not throwing out the bunting for any street parties but but they are listening and 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 you know a lot of the time they are enforcing at the end when someone's murdered it's already happened um uh, and I think we are getting to the point now where we're talking about some of these interventions at a much early age, where we're looking at families rather than uh, perpetrators. We're looking at people who are victims of criminal exploitation. But but at the same time, Neil, I, I, I really do think that we, we need to understand that nationally, young people have become the enemy. You know, so I've done lots of consultations in, in, in Rope Walk and around that area where they were wanted to take away park benches because young people with hoodies sit on them. Now, mm. they're not doing anything. There's always been, you know, from the teddy boys to the mm. mods to the, you know, there's always been youth movements, punk that have been uh, kind of demonised, hasn't there? And then it was kids with hoodies. Yeah. It's kind of nothing new, I suppose. Whether there is a higher degree of, of knife crime and a higher degree of gang-related activity now than there was 20, 30 years ago? I don't know. Do you know what? I think the culture has taken us there. I think, you know, our alienations of young people where they've had to find their own values. Because, for instance, the beginning of COVID, I walked around, like everyone else did, looking for toilet roll. Couldn't find any. I went to an Aldi okay. and, and I yeah. followed this yeah. young boy, must have been about seven, six or seven, through the shelving of Aldi that people had ripped apart. It was, it was, it was, you know, end of the world kind of and I looked at this young boy and he looked completely didn't understand what was going on he realized his dad didn't understand what's going on he realized adults didn't understand what was going on for me that 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 shows you know and this has been going on for a long time because you know we tell kids not to carry knives 
right? Now, I hear from young people every day, or I go to hospital to visit a young person that's been stabbed, and I speak to his friends. If he had had a knife, he wouldn't be dead. If he had a knife, he wouldn't be stabbed. But we're keeping on this thing. No, don't carry knives. It's, the, the fact is, this is the belief that they have. And they have created a culture that has made their own values and their own morals because they see us as adults have failing them. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's what's happening on the streets. The children no longer believe in us as the guiders of their future. And, 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 and I know they're wrong because once they get to my grand old age of 50, you know, I, I was about that life when I was 14. I left home at 14 and lived on the streets of London and did all kinds of stuff. But, but you know, I'm glad I've lived because lots of my friends didn't live to this age. A lot of them died in prison or, or, or died from other stuff. I'm, I'm at 50 years old and I can look back and go, actually, wow, man, what, what an idiot I was. The respect for adults and that this whole thing around you should respect authority and how young people don't. But actually, if you do drill into it, pretty much the reason the whole world, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm gonna swear now, the whole world is fucked is because of old people and adults. And actually, you know, they have been let down consistently by pretty much every institution. You know, you could argue that, you know, the judicial system has let them down, the education system, as you say, policing, you know, uh, Brexit, the financial. So actually, they're kind of like, do you know what? Sod you. Yeah. I kind of get why, really. Yeah, yeah, but but, you know? but also, Neil, uh, and yet, Neil, listen, do we, you know, as 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 someone your age, when you listen to drill music, do you go, oh, that's rubbish, pull up your pants, stop talking that way? The same things that we had as children, we are putting on our kids. Your music's rubbish, the way you talk is rubbish, you know, what you're doing is rubbish, fix up, kind yeah. of get yourself straight. And, 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 they have gone because they haven't got that director uncle that they can go to. I hate it in the middle of a podcast when somebody jumps in to try and sell you something. It really does my head in. Join the Bristol Cable, the city's only community-owned newspaper. As a member from just £1 a month, you get to help steer the cable forward as we build an alternative to the failing mainstream media. That is that bit. That's a, that was from the producer. That I read that. Cheers. Um, your role, uh, you know, you're, you're a black person. You work quite closely with the police. Mm-hmm. There's always been, and I know this from where I've grown up. There's always been cynicism. Mm-hmm. There's always been suspicion. There's always been a, a slightly distant relationship for, for for a number of reasons with the black community. And the police, you know, the, the terms Babylon, yeah. you know, you don't work with the police. Uh, for you, for you personally, as someone who's kind of put yourself in the middle to create a bridge, uh, how has that been received by people from, from your community? Uh, <laughs> reality, I'm not from Bristol. So uh, that's <laughs> yeah. my first marker against my name. Um, I maybe don't follow the Bristol ways. Um, uh, but you know, I, I've learned to grow a Teflon skin. You know, I'm still in the game. So um, some, mm-hmm. some of the things that are said about me obviously aren't true because I, I would have been removed if they were. You know, I've had that I'm an informer, that I'm a Met Police officer um, and, and all these kind of things, which, which you know, yeah, you know, you, 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 uh, the parents of the children. How do you, how do you have, respond to that? Because well, I've heard that. I, I yeah. have heard people say that. So, you know, that, you know, you, a, yeah. So, yeah. How, yeah, how do you, what do you, yeah, what do you say to that? Well, I don't have to say anything, and it did hurt me initially because my ego was at the front. And then suddenly I started doing the work. Since Tyrone's death in December, 
I spend most weekends at hospital with stab victims and their families, um, supporting them. I, I have taken knives off the street. Um, it's really hard to tell whether you stop serious violence because, you know, no murder doesn't mean you've done anything at all. But, you know, I, I really do believe and, and, you know, there's certain voices in the community that shout the loudest and go, da, 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 da. But actually, I've started in the last three years meeting the, the families of children who are victims of perpetrators of serious violence. And I am involved in their lives. That, that's the best I can say. I'm not saying that I'm, uh, you know, uh, 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 Florence Nightingale coming, but I'm involved in the lives and I've got, I've got that privilege to, to, to help them change. But, you know, of course I've received, you know, people don't like me and, and oh, well, <laughs> you know, the fact is, is that when I'm, in, <laughs> when I'm in a hospital and I'm comforting a young person who, who I'm cradling in my arms like a baby because they've been stabbed uh, and then speaking to their mum, making sure that they're housing and that's the work. That, that's the work for me. And, and there's lots of organisations. It's not just me at all. I'm not trying to say that, you know, Youth Horn Concern, uh, Khalil is a, is, a, is a great guy. Anton Brown, Delhi, as he might be known, is an amazing worker in the community. Uh, you've got Roots. You've got people like Jason Morrison, Amari. You know, there's lots of us out here doing it. Um, and I've, I've been in lots of places. You know, my experience of, of, of my blackness... Uh, isn't limited to, to, to Bristol. I'm black everywhere I go. Yeah. And the treatment of people in yeah. Nottingham, Leeds, Chapel Town, uh, Brixton, Tottenham, there is a currency that is there. So I just think sometimes we're a bit small-minded. Somebody said to me recently that he's not from Bristol, mm. but is black. People's blackness gets policed in Bristol. You know, listen. I, I, and, and would that so? Do, do, do you feel that? Yeah, I'm dual heritage. My mum's Irish. My father's uh, Jamaican. I was born in Africa. I, I, I'm 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 policed on my my blackness sometimes uh, on my yeah. uh, on my integrity of why I'm doing this. Uh, uh, of course, and 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 you know, I think there is a particular thing about Bristol, and I understand why because I I will tell you that I have seen people come from the outside, suck up all the money, and leave. You have seen that, of course. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen, I see it, and and that was one of my first things that I was fighting. Who? But, but you know, I, I, yeah. I haven't got enough money to pay the libel bills. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, yeah but, sure. but but the truth is, for me, I live. I, I married a Bristol woman. I, I, my money's spent here. I, I I put money into the communities, young people. I'm, I'm paying for a young man to go to a top sports academy for his rehabilitation. Because actually, at the end of the day, for some of these groups, whether they're black or white, what I actually want for them. Is, and this is my vision, is I want to give a private education to some of the most disadvantaged young people because, as you said, look, a prison, a prison, uh, a youth custody sentence, 120 grand, how much does it go to Eton? It's about 80 grand. So if we took that money and we gave young people a private education... Back to that kind yeah, of question yeah, that please. you are working with the police. For some Ooh, people... That's untenable. Uh, not exclusively in the black community, that's yeah. untenable. I guess... Uh, surely, surely, trying to improve relations with the police and the community, and you don't hold back. You do hold the police's feet to the fire as mm. well. I don't think you're in a position where you're just kind of, you know, positioning yourself and kind of colluding. The counter kind of thing is what 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 are you supposed to do? Never talk to them, have them as a constant enemy. 
Yeah, well... You know, ne- never have any kind of dialogue. I mean, how does progress and how do things change if there isn't a position of at least a conversation? Well, no, exactly. And this is why I'm trying to promote this conversation now with the Black Lives Matter and the defunding the police idea. You know, as far as defunding the police in, in, in the UK, I think, you know, we've got to look at that in a different way because it do- it's not the same as America. But But I think the concept of, you know, communities and police, because I see Avon of Somerset, as a police service that isn't seen by some community as their police service. So so for me, what I'm trying to talk to the police about is conversations around a charter of what policing is, because policing is by consent, by uniformed civilians from the community that protect the community. That was the, the Pelian principles. If, if anyone wants to Google that, you will see a, a very rigid set of rules that all police forces say, oh, we're all about the PDM principles. So let's get back to some of those, which means that the authority of the police comes from the people. So you've got black communities that are over-policed and under-protected. When you go in and you talk to police officers, you know, the, the majority are presumably white, what do you? What, how do you approach it, and and how do they receive it? Are they defensive? Do they accept that this is a, a truth and a reality, and they need to change? Well, well, I'm very consistent with my viewpoint. So I, I also lucky enough doing workshops with the new police recruits on the degree course, talking about the effects of policing in in black communities, and you know I've been very consistent that that there are issues. With an institutionally racist police force, let's say that, and I'm not, people are going to get upset with me for saying that, within that, there are, I'm working with great officers who really want to change. After Judah, the non-conviction of the police officer that tased him, I put a, a post out in the Bristol Post where I talked about the Pelian principles and the institutional racism of the police. And I called on police officers to take control of their police stations who were right-thinking. And I do think that 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 message was heard. Um, I I will say, and I hope he doesn't mind, for instance, Paul Wigginton, who is is a a police officer, chief superintendent, is one of those officers that I have confidence in that is wanting to change the force and has the ability to change it because he he has rank. So, you know, of course I'm not everyone's cup of tea because some people have this mythology that the Babylon is always going to be Babylon. So the word Babylon is often used to refer to the police, but its origins and meaning are far wider. Jamaicans use this to compare their experience of being brought to the Americas to the Jews being brought to Babylon during the Babylonian captivity. So Babylon refers to the place of captivity, but also the power structure that keeps them there. It can also apply to imperial powers, commercial powers, such as big corporations and governments. So... Musician Peter Tosh, for example, didn't want to go on tour in the US because he didn't want to go into the heart of Babylon. Because obviously, yeah, if you're working with Babylon, uh, you know, the black communities or elements of the black community won't like you. And obviously, if there are a few kind of um, police officers that think this is a load of PC nonsense, they're probably a bit suspicious and wary of it as well. Oh, yeah. So could you could you oh, almost be unpopular in both arenas? Oh, yeah. yeah? And, and I know I am. I know I am. And, and the police side, too. I think there is a culture where you put up, shut up what you're doing, you're criminals. You know, there is that. But, but you know, what do you do? So I, I started late in this actual campaigning stuff. And it was with Jude. I saw a 63-year-old man being tased in the face for a wrongful identity. And for me, my wife woke me up that day 
And I, I saw that and I thought, if he had been a white man in Clifton, he would have been helped to door and the door opened and his shopping carried in. Uh, and I really believe that and I still believe that now. I think that at 63 yeah. years old, and, I, and I'm getting on myself, I don't want to be in that position where I'm still dealing with, and you swore earlier, the same shit that I've dealt with all my life yeah. and, and, and I've normalised it. Almost chucking yourself in the firing line, really. Um you know, and having to have quite strong skin and, and potentially leaving yourself open to to attack from both sides. Mm. Do you think this is something that um, you're able to cope with better because you're a bit older and experienced and maybe if the younger Des uh, would have reacted differently and maybe wouldn't have been able to cope with, with that pressure? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think, no? you know, number one, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't have been able to deal with the, the change of mindset that, you know, I, I, I want our young people to survive encounters with the police. Um, and, and so for that to happen, I need to prepare the police for the encounters with some of our young people as well and also <laughs> yeah. hold them to account. You know, so since I started, 25% of body cam was used uh, in 2017. We're up to 98%. You know, I'm part of the scrutiny panel that was formed due to the, our protest. So now we have, I sit on a scrutiny panel where we looked at body cam, where we scrutinise what the police are doing. It's not perfect, but I can now see what those police officers have done and demand that I see that. Because I'm an independent chair. I'm not part of the PCC or the police. I can say whatever I want to about those, those videos. But, but the truth is, through that engagement, we have moved ourselves up to this point where there is accountability. And I'm not saying that I'm going to solve anything. My tenure as, 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 as Lamy uh, ends next year. But I'm wanting to be some shoulders that the next people can stand on. Sure. And, and it's interesting that you, you're aware enough of the, the Bristol landscape to understand where some of the, the cynicism comes from. Um, yeah. So you're here for the kind of long haul because Bristol really is is in the pipeline and the epicentre of the whole county line kind of thing. And yeah. I think people don't, unless you're privy to the criminal underworld or you work in the police, most people don't really know what's going on under the radar. Do yeah. they? Even in little, you know, little places like Almondsbury and Thornbury and Tewkesbury, yeah. these little villages. Yeah. Explain what county lines is to the uninitiated. Right, so so county lines. Uh, a lot of people get confused. They think it's about kind of an American thing of once you go over the county that you can't be. County lines basically refer to drug distribution using vulnerable people to do it. It usually uses a phone line, which is called the county line, uh, which is where those drugs are dealt through. Um, the police estimates, I think, two years ago, what there was at least ten thousand, a very low estimate of county line groups operating, you'll find that, you know, they were making about, this is the whole group, £2 million a day doing that, using vulnerable people, exploiting children and young women and girls. Going into a rural community, what's it called when you go in and take over somebody's house? It's a kind a of cocooing. Yeah, so you take over somebody's house that's a drug user and you, you kind of probably give them a few drugs to keep them sweet. You take over the house, mm. you use it as a, a place to deal drugs from. Yeah. And this has been happening in Bristol, I know, where they're trying to track if all of a sudden a young person is not attending school, yeah. um, then there's a, then it's a red flag because they are actually trying to, uh, and this is the bit I'm interested in really, trying to bring on board not just kind of 
inner city kids, but actually middle class kids from more affluent schools yeah. to, to do, do the dealing for them. That sounds really far fetched, but it is happening, isn't it? No, down the country. Yeah. Well, so what we call it now is the affluent neglected. And these are young people mm. who are into the culture, wear the clothes and want to be a drug dealer. And they're not coming from the traditional yeah. pathways of poverty. You know, they're, they're coming from families that basically they feel neglected or they're not being supervised properly. And, and, and we're seeing a rise in that, and especially young white girls from middle-class backgrounds, which is probably why we're seeing, you know, go up the charts of, 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 of worry for the nation. But, but mm. you know, and rightly so, because we need to worry about, about these groups. But, you know... Th- these criminal exploitators, they change faster than the police can operate. So speaking to police officers, they will find a venue, they get a warrant, and by the time they get there, that house has been moved to another house. They get a warrant, they go through the process, it's moved to another house. So this idea of some young kids getting together to sell some drugs is a nonsense. You're talking about organised crime who are yeah. using certain street groups to recruit people to sell their product and we need to go upstream to deal with it rather than criminalising these young people. So we've got some great things like the NRM, which is a national referral mechanism about modern slavery, which the police in Avon and Somerset have really picked up on, that there are certain groups that have been exploited that they need to be protected. But, you know, we are finding Taunton, different areas in Somerset, where we're getting young people the age of 9, 10, 11 and 12 being trafficked to to sell drugs. One of the ones that I know of, a girl was picked up, I think she was 15, she'd been pimped out as a sex worker. That's the reason why they found the house in Taunton. She told them where she was, they went back to the house, found two 13-year-olds basically locked in a house serving up drugs. Wow. You know, and, wow. and when we went back to look at it, some of their missing episodes from school weren't reported, parents weren't reporting, you know, so so these kids are, are falling down holes that even the mechanisms to capture them aren't capturing them because of lots of other issues around families not wanting to report because they don't want issues with the police, social services. But these are the ones they're recruiting. They're recruiting the ones from care homes. They're recruiting the ones from dysfunctional families or families with drug and alcohol abuse. I guess that's a because they're vulnerable or drawn to it, but also probably more importantly, they haven't got much heat on them. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, so they're kind of under radar for the police. Yeah, yeah? but I think one thing we have to remember, though, Neil, is also you know this idea of being exploited. There are lots of young people who are running to these exploiters because they see no other option in their life. These are the guys that are wearing the Italian clothing, going on foreign holidays, driving BMWs and Mercedes. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to take away that they're still exploiting them, but some of the young people they are being drawn to these people, and and in their experience, this is the way out of their situation for their family. Society is doing this to these young people. If we look at our media, we look at TV. It's all about being the wealthiest, having the most material stuff. How are you going to get that if you're really really poor, have no education, your mum's an alcoholic? Your dad's on crack. How how are you going to escape that? You're going to go, actually, I'm going to go to the first place that I can see what you can give me something that's going to solve my situation. And and unfortunately, some of these young people are running to these exploiters because they see no other option for their life 
And that's a very, very sad indication of what our society is. I mean, the obvious thing to do is, is to legalise drugs, isn't it? Wouldn't that remove the criminalisation of generations of young people? Um, uh, yeah, but actually the, the, the causes of it is, is the fact that we have an underclass that is kept as an underclass on purpose. And, and I really do believe that. It might sound a bit irrational, but I really do believe. Let's look at the Windrush stuff, right? That was willfully hidden because, and, 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 I, and I get this from a very good source, because it was called racial tension in the country. So that's black people being managed. Then you've got the, the, the COVID, which was buried again because it would cause racial... You know, as much as I work with the institutions, I, I hold it to account because... This government has been willfully blind around people of African descent who have built this country, helped to maintain this country for in every single war, and still we, we, we're lacking. So we know this is willfully blind. There is a disparity, there is a disadvantage in this country, even though Jamaica was part of Britain before Scotland was, you know, before the Union was ever, but yet we are, you know... Yeah, of course, I think that there is an agenda against, and, and, and that's also against working class people. The, the, the big connection, really, from what we've been talking around. So, so we've got the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. We've got things we've spoken around police and the, a massive, not just in the city, not just in the country, but global story mm. was actually, and you've made reference to him before, Andy Marsh is the decision by the Avon and Somerset police not to intervene mm -hmm. when the Colson statue came down, which did divide opinion massively mm -hmm. uh, across the country. Yeah. Some were saying it was sensible policing because it allowed, um, you know, it prevented a riot. Others saying it's absolutely outrageous that we've you've kind of allowed uh, this criminal damage, then it sets a precedent across the whole of the country. Mm -hmm. But that actual decision to kind of for the police to stand back, um, did you know that was coming? No, not at all. But I welcomed it. And I think that Andy Marsh, his speech was inspiring because he understood what policing by consent really means. And I think that is, you know, I'm not trying to take any credit, but for all of us that were involved in, in those discussions over the last three years, the fact that a statue was pulled down rather than horses going in with batons, beating people over the head, possibly killing them, you know, arrests, criminal justice, you know, it was a statue. I mean, because there was a national, you know, the, the, the Home Office and the Home Secretary, they were um, calling for, for, for him to be sacked, though, weren't they? They were calling for uh, Andy Bennett to be sacked. Yeah, but listen, Andy Bennett has done more within the community in the last three or four years than I think any commander has ever done. Listen, we've got the call-in. The call-in gives young black boys who are first offence an opportunity to get that taken off, if they engage with community mentors, this is not the police, this is with people within the community to guide them out of that. People that have been exploited by drug dealers who have now escaped mm -hmm. that and are on a better trajectory than they've ever been. And that is partly, and I hate to say it, and people will hate me, because of the police. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, but it's the truth. Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's what okay. we should be saying to everyone, that... That's what the police should be doing. They shouldn't be, yes, I have issues with their locking people up, but actually when they're doing stuff to enable young people not to be criminalised, we should be shouting about that and, and going, that's what the police should be doing.
and then they're more likely to not, yeah. I mean, I, I remember in the early days of me working in Barton Hill where we used to always get a couple of um, local uh, local bobbies would um, come on activities with the kids. Mm. Old-fashioned community policing, really. And whenever they would then see a young person, I don't know, nicking a motorbike or shoplifting or getting caught up in some antisocial behaviour of any kind, the response and the relationship had a different dynamic. Mm. And I think it did work. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there are, there's always, you know, p- police and coppers that compete against each other for arrest rates and things like that. But I think the old fashioned community policing stuff, it, it does work. It is effective. You know, I think if you do diversionary activities, there's, there's vast amounts of studies to demonstrate that it has an impact, um, not just on the young person and redirecting his behaviour, but on the relationship the young person can have with individual people within the within the police. And, you know, they are also human beings, and we do forget that. I grew up in a community where we all hate the police as well. I was told to hate the police, everyone hate the police. But actually, you know, it, you take people as you find them, and maybe as an institution there are many things that need to change. But as you say, when good things do happen and positive things are changing, you, you, you have to... You have to um, acknowledge that, I think. But we need community in uniform, accountable to the community. That, that's it. It's simple. That's what Pelian principle, police have yeah. power through the community. And the community gives them that power to enforce the law. I think we've kind of gone away and we've had, you know, this idea of police force. Now we've got police service, but we're still police kind state. of in the police oh, yeah, force yeah. kind of thing. But, but what we need to do yeah. is... I want my community to police us. And whether there's some people in uniform and some of them are community leaders, and we have lots of great community leaders already and in waiting to come up. But, but you know, this is what we need to push the police for, is, is hold into account that you are civilians in uniform under the constitution of the people, not that you're autonomous and you can do what you want. You have to come back and be accountable to the community you serve. So don't over-police us and under-protect us police us we want to be policed as well this this is the other thing is is that we kind of seen that black communities are criminal communities i hear all the time i speak to communities all the time that are desperate to have policing you know uh, and and to be protected what's next for you to get this lemon review done actually have something tangible that i've achieved and actually have recommendations that someone else can build on and then support 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 whoever comes next and the community so that we can start you know we're not in a bad shape we're really really good at what we do there's some black excellence within our community that needs to be promoted and that's my next thing is really i want to start sponsoring some young people into places of power well, that's a lovely note to end on, Des, and appreciate your time. We're good. Top man. Cheers, Des. Speak to you soon. In the next episode of Bristol Impact, we talk all about housing with Councillor Paul Smith, Head of Housing for Bristol City Council, about the current state of play in the city. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes, and if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable, along with 2,000 others, to create a new kind of media for the city.